Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the blessings that you give us. Um, God, I pray that you will be here in this uh, moment, in this place, that you will uh, speak to us. God, I pray that uh, we will have ears to hear your message. Um, I pray that the things that might be distracting, some more than others, <laughs> uh, will uh, not be distracting. God, I, I, I long to have a, a time here this morning where uh, we hear you and we trust in you. God, we sing, Lord, reign in us. And we pray that you will reign in this place, in our hearts, and in this church. And so encourage us this morning as we spend some time in the Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start our time this morning. Uh, Mike Jones is going to uh, come up and uh, give us a little bit of an update on where we're at with our Next Vision redevelopment campaign. Um, and it's not really sermon material, uh, but as we progress through this morning, I think you will see why it needs to be right now uh, and not later in the service. Uh, so, uh, Mike, if you would uh, join us up here and uh, give us an update, and then we will continue on uh, in our time in First Peter. Good morning. A little over two years ago, we started discussing rethinking this, uh, this facility that God has provided for us. And in November of 2015, we had a kickoff. And here we are, how many ever months late, a year plus later. And um, we want to um, provide for you an update. Um, the best thing to do is for me just to read this. Um, when we first started out on this project, we saw undeveloped and underutilized assets on one of the uh, busiest east-west boulevards in Albuquerque. Development of the property along the frontage of Montgomery was a logical choice to maximize the value of the property, use the proceeds to pay off debt, and to build a more sustainable church and school facility. Our desire was to stay at this location and continue to serve this area of Albuquerque. We began hiring professionals to work out the details of the plan. At that time, we believed that engagement with the neighborhood would occur during the rezoning process, which would be required to change our SU-1 zoning. Through this process with professionals, we discovered protective covenants had been filed in 1952 when the Knapp Heights subdivision was established. With a few exceptions, the entire subdivision is limited to single-family dwellings. After consulting with our attorneys, we were given two options. One, file a lawsuit against all of the Knapp Heights property owners to amend the restrictions, or two, get a majority of the property owners to sign an amendment to the restrictions. Our leadership determined that filing a lawsuit was not an option we were willing to take. We began meetings with the neighbors to negotiate agreeable uses, traffic, access, and additional concerns. Simultaneous to these meetings, we became curious as to how the original lot purchases were accomplished in view of the, of the protective covenants. We began to dig further into the purchase history of the church property. It was through this research that we confirmed 
as we were told, that the original 13 lots that the church was built on in 1956, uh, 1965 were purchased by individual members of the church, not the church itself. These members bought the properties under their own names and then filed a lawsuit against the other Knapp Heights property owners, there were not many at the time, to violate the restrictive covenants for church and school use. These individuals then deeded the property of the church for the construction to begin. Later, the property was replatted into one lot. Over the years, after initial construction, the lots between Messiah and Chama were purchased by forming a land company to act on behalf of the church. These lots were then deeded to the church. In 1976, an additional lawsuit was filed against the Knapp Heights property owners to set aside the protective covenants on the property purchased by the land company. None of the church leaders involved in those purchases, replats, and lawsuits are currently a part of the Montgomery Church. We do not know their motives, processes, or situations that led them to these decisions. Once this additional history was discovered, we had a meeting of the church leadership to determine if this new information should change our course. It was unanimously decided that this information certainly would change the plans. While we may have a good legal case that cites changed circumstances, we believe that we have an ethical responsibility of, as a church to approach the protective covenants and our neighbors in a different way. We immediately instructed our professionals to stop work on the project until we were able to regroup and determine what our next steps would be. We have said that nothing, doing nothing is not an option, and that remains true. When we began this project, there were several issues that still need answers. We have empty land that can no longer be maintained and is not of value to us the way it is. We have an aging building that is requiring significant amount of deferred maintenance. We have an outdated building that is too large for our ministry to sustain. So how do we uh, resolve these issues in light of the protective covenants, the needs of the neighborhood, our history as a church, and the needs for the future of the church? We're not sure where God will lead, but we know we, he will direct our steps. So what we're asking is, uh, is please pray for clarity and wisdom for our leadership and redevelopment team as we pursue a new vision and direction. Jason, Jeff, and I, the redevelopment team, are available to answer any questions you might have at any time. Thank you. Would take that information, and just put that on the back burner for just a moment, uh, as we kind of process through this. Um, this is, for me, information that I've, I've been sitting on for a few months now, uh, processing while we're going through this sermon series on 1 Peter. Uh, and I've said many times uh, that the text often picks me. I do not pick the text. Uh, and here we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, in light of current circumstances. Let's spend some time in the Word here. Um, it used to be that when you needed to wake up in the morning, you relied on your rooster. Uh, so hopefully you had a loud enough rooster in the backyard that would uh, crow when it was time to wake up, and that would initiate the time that it was, it was to, to go out and begin the chores. Uh, this is not a life that I know well, uh, but 
they tell me that this is what people do out on a farm. And over time, we've developed new technologies that help to wake us up. Technologies, alarms that, that help us to get out of bed. Most humans don't really have an, intern, an internal alarm clock unless you are very young or maybe a little bit on the old side. Somehow the body doesn't really know what time it is unless you're a two-year-old and it's two o'clock in the morning. Um, but most of us have to rely on some sort of device to be able to wake up. And some of us, the alarm goes off and we immediately jump out of bed and we're ready to go. Boo on you. And there's others of us that uh, need to hit the snooze button a few more times before we can finally shake ourselves up enough to uh, get out of bed and get the day going. And we hit the snooze button and, you know, five more minutes and five more minutes and 45 minutes later, you're like, maybe I should probably get out of bed. Um, there, there are some other devices that have been created for people like that. There is a puzzle alarm clock where there's these pieces of a puzzle that when the alarm goes off, they explode out across your room and you have to get these pieces back together before the alarm will go off. Um, there was another one I saw online where a rocket launches out of, out of the alarm and you have to find the rocket somewhere in your room and go get that rocket back on the launch pad before the annoying sound will stop. Um, there's one that is called Clocky for uh, those of us that are snoozers. Uh, you hit the snooze button and suddenly the clock uh, attach, uh, wheels come out of it and it rolls somewhere into your room and hides itself and you have to go finding this clock to be able to get the alarm to go off. So, so some of us are, are right now Googling, trying to figure out where we can find such a clock to get us out of bed. Uh, maybe you can't find one on the market and so you have to actually build one yourself as this guy here did. This alarm clock. Computer controlled, powered by an air compressor. This is how I wake up every single morning. I've been using this bed to wake up for the past four years. And this is what it looks like. Hi, Mom! Obviously not a morning person. <laughs> Some of us need more help than others. Uh, so whether or not you're the kind of person who can just wake up first thing and jump out of bed or some uh, that requires uh, a bed that literally throws you out of bed to get you out of bed, um, there's a different kind of wake-up call we're talking about this morning. A wake-up call that uh, Peter is giving us as we get into chapter 4. Uh, Peter is someone who heard a rooster crow, right? He's someone who had a wake-up call with Jesus, and, and it was the transformative work of the Spirit within him that, that woke him up to the reality of the kingdom of God, that, that created in him this new sense of urgency, this new sense of purpose, more so than what had ever existed in his life before. And as you read through the preaching of Peter throughout the book of Acts, you see God working through him as, as someone who is fully awake, someone who is fully driven, someone with a sense of urgency for spreading the gospel. This is 
the Peter that we read of on the day of Pentecost, who, who stands up in front of the crowd and says, quoting the prophet Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is the man who concludes this sermon saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a man with a sense of urgency. Later, he is brought in and interrogated by the Sanhedrin, and, and he gets up in front of them and says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? He's talking to the judges and saying, should I listen to you or listen to someone else? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's an urgency. There is a there is something that is, is awakened in him as he encounters Jesus and enters into this ministry. And so as we study in 1 Peter, we get to this section where Peter is sounding an alarm. He is sounding an alarm with these first few words beginning in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, to start out a statement like the end of all things is near makes us think of someone like this who's holding a sign and says the end is near. And, and I love this picture because it says a lot because the, notice the lady on the far right side that's just kind of smirking and everybody else is just going about their business there's no sense of urgency whatsoever. There's just this fanatic, this crazy guy in the middle of this crowd saying the end is near. And so when we hear things like the end is near, I think more of us react like her and less like him. There's not a sense of urgency that's created in the idea that the end of things is near. And so Peter, as he's writing here, he's clearly operating from this assumption that, that the end of the world is near, that history as we know it is coming to a close, there will be a day of final judgment, the end is near. And this is the, the lens in which he operates as he's giving these churches instructions, he believed that the end of history was imminent, and this created in him this sense of urgency, this sense of importance, this sense of, of immediacy to what it is that he is having to do. And so when, when we know we only have a certain amount of time, when we, when we get a diagnosis, when, when we get a, a certain message, when we get something that is told to us that, that the end is near, maybe it's the end of a job, maybe it's the end of a life, maybe it's the end of a relationship, maybe it's an end of a lot of different things, when we know that the end is near, it drastically changes the way we operate. Throughout the course of VBS, on Monday, we operated a certain way. On Thursday, when the end is near, the teachers are operating in a different way. The same for school teachers, right? The end is near, so operate in a different way. Let's just get through it, right? And so Peter is operating in this way. But we have a problem. We operate in a world that has no belief in the end of history, 
We, we have no belief that says the end is near, that it's the guy holding the sign, the fanatic, the joke of the room that would say that the end is near. And so too many times in our past, we've had people who have actually tried to prophetically add a date to when the end is, and that end comes and goes, and it didn't end. <laughs> And so we look at stories like that and we say, really, is the end going to come any day now? Because we've been waiting a while. And so we've been waiting for so long for the end that we become numb to a sense of urgency that the end may be tomorrow. And so we don't operate with this urgency that Peter operates under. To say that the end is near, that should be changing the way we operate as a church and as a people. We, we live in a world that has no belief that God is bringing an end to history. And, and even more so, there's no belief that he would actually be coming to judge people and determine their eternal fate. There's an author, Christopher uh, Lask, who, who describes something he calls the myth of progress. And the, the myth of progress is this idea, it's this belief that somehow through better methods, through better techniques, through better therapy, through better self-development, through better science, through better computer know-how, the world will actually get better that we as humans can control the environment around us and we will progress and we will progress and things will improve and will improve and the world will become great again. And so there's this idea that we're in control of what's going on. And while there are tremendous improvements in the areas of science, in the areas of technology, things that have vastly improved our quality of life, yes, those things have made things better, but, but the myth of progress tells us and gives us this idea that we can be dependent on our own abilities and our own systems and our own ways to improve the world around us. And then you add on top of that a consumer mindset that we have that says not only can things improve, but I need to sit back and be dependent on others to improve it for me so that I can consume the products that they develop that will improve my life. And if that politician, if that scientist, if that doctor is not improving it in a way that I see fit, then I go and find a different one. And so this way of thinking is deeply ingrained in us, this idea of progress, this myth of progress. It creeps in and it erodes away at our belief in an end time and in a final judgment. And so the myth of progress replaces the fact of final judgment. And so we do not act in such a way that we believe in a final judgment, in an end to history. And so the result of this produces very little urgency among Christians, very little urgency among our churches. And when there is a sense of urgency, it's almost always focused on what we can do to control the environment. What can we do to make progress 
in how we do church. Are there better methods? Are there better techniques? Are there better therapies? Are there, are there better self-developments or better sciences or better technologies or better buildings? Can we rely on these things to make our church great again? And so the alarm sounds with the very first words out of Peter's mouth in this statement. The end of all things is near. This is the context, the foundation for which he gives these specific instructions, these specific directives to the churches that he's leading. As as a family of God that's in a time of suffering, in a time of persecution, in a time of uncertainty, in a time where at any moment Jesus could return, this is how you should be doing church. So let's read together. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter comes in and he says, the end is near. You need to be operating with some urgency. And if you're going to be operating with urgency, you need to be praying. You need to love one another. You need to be hospitable. And you need to serve others with your gifts. This is what the church needs to be doing in the midst of this time. And so how can we become better? It is not through the myth of progress. It is through the work of God, through the work of his people in his church. It is the community of faith coming together to pray and to love and to feed and to serve. This is the urgent matter to be dealt with. And so he says to pray. That that we need to be mentally and spiritually alert, that that our minds have to be engaged, our hearts have to be engaged spiritually, mentally alert and engaged, and we need to be praying. That we we need this goal of, of having an effective prayer life. It needs to be robust. The entire church, this is not for the professionals, this is not for the hyper-spiritual, this is for all of us. We all need to stay alert, we all need to be praying. And this will energize us, and it will lead us to, to an effective focus of those prayers. And this is something Peter is, is living and, and, and talking about out of experience, 
We read about his experiences in Acts chapter 4, where he's actually imprisoned for speaking the gospel, and he's released from prison. And in Acts chapter 4, he's released and goes back to their own people. He reported all that had happened with the chief priests and the elders. And when the people heard this, they heard Peter's story, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They didn't go off for some quiet time. They didn't go off for their own isolated, personal, this is me and God time. They raised their voices together to God. Because the church was under persecution, the church was going through difficult times, and they raised their voices to God. A few verses later, now, this, this is how they prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What do they do? They've just been arrested, so they lift their voices up to God. They pray and ask for boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They prayed for boldness, they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke boldly. Acts chapter 1 describes what the community of faith was like. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and all his brothers. They were constantly together in prayer, raising their voices in prayer, praying for boldness. And then he says that we're to love. This is one of the core values that, that, that he calls us into, that, that a community of faith, a family of God, will come together for prayer, but they will come together and they will demonstrate a love for one another. Jesus talks about his disciples being known for their, their unity and their love for one another. This is a defining mark of what it means to be the family of God. That, that when you're threatened, when you're persecuted, the church is strengthened in its faith when it will relate to one another in love. And he says, deeply Work deeply. This word deeply is this idea of work. You have to work at loving each other this way because we are people and we are annoying. It is hard to love you and it is hard to love me. And so we have to work deeply at loving one another. It requires intentionality. Deeply is this work at loving one another because it's hard to do so, especially under stress. What are you like under stress? How do you treat your spouse when you're under stress? How do you treat your kids when you're under stress? When is it easy to love your kids? When they're like that. They're just sleeping and sweet and cuddly. Ah, I love her. And then there's other times where you're like, I love her. Right, And so if we're under stress, it takes even more effort to love one another 
And with a group this size, this many people, there are enough of us under stress that this is a challenge. And then if anything goes wrong with our plans, if anything goes wrong with with what we have laid out to happen this month and next month and in the coming years, if we've raised money for some big project and that big project now has the brakes thrown on it, what is the stress like? Someone makes a bad decision, if, if things aren't communicated well, if there's confusion about something, we've been disappointed, or, or maybe somebody didn't talk to us the way we thought we should be talked to, or maybe they just walked past us and ignored us, or whatever it is that is causing stress among us, love covers over a multitude of sins. And so when we find ourselves in this place, we pray and we love and then we eat. Because you're to demonstrate hospitality. And what better way to apply a love for one another to actually receive people into our homes, to make them feel welcome, to meet their needs, to provide for them and give them a place of fellowship and acceptance. There's there's no better way you can demonstrate love for someone than to invite them into your home to see how imperfect it is, to see how your kids don't behave the way you hoped they would that night, to see how the, the house may not be put together quite the way it is that you would like for it to be. But yet we invite them into our lives, we invite them into our homes to see who we really are, to see where we really live, to see how we really treat one another. We invite them into our homes and provide for them, just providing a meal for them. This was a hallmark of the early church, that they would come together to to celebrate the Lord's supper together. They would come together and break bread together. And, and we see this pattern with, with Jesus where he is, he's doing so much of his discipling around a table as they share a meal together. The early church, they, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, they would meet together in these large gatherings, but then they would also break bread in their homes and eat with one another. And so they would come together in one another's homes, and, and they would have glad and sincere hearts as they would join together, and they would praise God and join the favor of all people And the Lord would add to their number every day those that were being saved. And then last, Peter says to serve. That that we are all gifted in unique ways and we need to use our gifts to serve one another. We serve others to, to faithfully administer God's grace in its various forms. That each of us have been given something and we're called to give that back. We're called to use that gift to serve this family, to serve the body of Christ, to serve the kingdom of God. And so what is that unique thing that you've been given? What is it that God has given you that he's asking you to use? And are you being a good steward of the gift that he's given you? Think about gifts that you've received over the years. Sometimes you receive a little trinket from somebody that you don't really know. That gift really is not that important. How you use that gift 
if it goes in the goodwill bin, if it goes somewhere else. Eh, who knows? But a gift from somebody that's really important. The relationship of the person is not just about the quality of the gift, but who it comes from. And so now how you use that gift and how you treasure that gift and how you steward that gift is totally different. And so you have a gift that God has given you. It's from him. God, the creator of the universe, who has made you in his image, has gifted you with something. What are you doing with that gift? Did you put it in a box and send it to goodwill? Or are you using that gift to faithfully serve the family, to serve the body of Christ, to serve the kingdom of God? The way in which we serve one another demonstrates how we love one another. It demonstrates what a a Christian community is and what a Christian community can be. And so use your gifts in a way that reflects Who gave them to you? He finishes off with this short little prayer that says, To God be the glory. That all of this, to pray, to love, to to show hospitality, to, to serve one another, these are all things that are done for the glory of God. And God will glorify himself through his Son, and the Son is at work in our prayers and in our service and in our loving ministries as a church, and he will use that for his glory. And so if we look to have a world that will get better, if we, if we want a place that is progressing in a positive way, it will only be because of God's grace working through the body of Christ. That this world is, is not on a track to be better because of politics, because of governments, because of systems, because of technology, because of wealth, because of whatever it is that you think is going to make this world a better place. This place will be made better because of the grace of God intervening into history. And he has hand picked and created and designed the church of Jesus Christ to do that. And he has called us into that mission. And so we may think that we have the capacity to do it ourselves. We may think that we have the capacity or the technology or the progress or the things that we can control, but those are not the things that will bring about change. And so we pray We pray that the kingdom of God will come. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that's all we have left to do. And so someday we will be judged for how we did these things. We will be judged and examined in our lives for for did for, for do we have lives that operated in light of eternity? Did we have lives that operated in light of, of God's just and fair judgment? How did we handle that? How did we steward that? 
And so we pray for one another, and we, we love one another, and we, we have hospitality shown to one another, and we, we exercise our gifts so that we can strengthen one another, and, and we can sustain ourselves and sustain our faith in a, in a season and a place and a time that is attacking the gospel as we face a world that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity, we rally together in prayer and love and hospitality and exercising our gifts of service so that we can encourage one another, we can build one another up, and we can sustain, be sustained in our faith. Now, it's hard because generations ago, sermons were all about hellfire, and, and it was about fearing the judgment of God. And if we can scare you enough, we will get you to convert and believe. And the pendulum swings to a place where we don't even talk about judgment at all anymore. And we don't want to be in either place. So, so as you hear, live in light of the judgment of God... This is not a message of fear. It's not a message that's scary. It's not a message of guilt. It's a message of here is a God who loves us, who has gifted us these incredible things. What are we going to do with that? How, how will our lives bring glory to God? How will this church bring glory to God? We don't do it because we're guilty. We don't do it because we're scared of the fires of hell. We do it because God loves us. And it is all rooted in love. Love is at the core of this. Yes, there will be a final judgment. Yes, history as we know it will end but it's a love for God and a love for others that will transform a society into what God has designed it to be, into a true church. That's who we're to be. And so the virtue of love dominates our thinking of how can I act lovingly to this person? How can we act lovingly to one another? If there are people in our church that you have a disagreement with, how do you respond? Do you walk that way around the auditorium instead of that way around the auditorium? Do you go out that door instead of that door? Or do we treat each other with love? Now, all of these will require a tremendous amount of intentionality. To have the prayer life that he's talking about, to have, to have the loving relationships that he's talking about, to be hospitable, like, you need to make a plan for that. You need to actually set a date on a calendar and invite someone over. There's an intentionality to it. It won't just happen. And so you may still be rubbing the sleep out of your eyes this morning, or maybe you've fallen back asleep. And you need an alarm to wake you up. And there's that annoying sound that's trying to wake you up. It's time to wake up. Stop hitting the snooze button and waiting for another day. Because the end is near. And whether or not that end is this afternoon or next year or a hundred years from now when we're all long dead, the end is near. 
And so will you be a people of prayer? Will you be a people of love? Will you be a people of hospitality? Will you be a people of service? Stop hitting the snooze button. Stop hitting the snooze button. So let's stand together. It's a challenge to figure out how to bring an application and a close to a message like this as we all sit in pews staring up front, as we're in an environment that doesn't really lend itself well to some of the things that we're talking about. And so I want to issue a couple challenges. And I don't speak with the authority of Peter. I am just the minister. But Peter gave these as commands, not as suggestions. He said, use your gifts He did not say, only be hospitable if that's your gift. Hospitality is a command separate from the command to use your gifts. And so, the challenge for you, for all of us, is this summer, you've got June and July, over the next two months, share a meal with somebody that you have not shared a meal with before. Ideally, in your home. Maybe that doesn't work for you for some reason, So go to a restaurant. But there is something significant and absolutely biblical about inviting people into your home to see how you live out your faith as a parent, as a grandparent, as a husband, as a wife. Invite somebody into your home that you haven't had a meal with. And if there is some circumstance that absolutely does not allow you to have them in your home, at least invite them to go out to lunch or out to dinner and share a meal with somebody. Some of us, this is easy. Some of us, this is terrifying. Who will share a meal with somebody in the next two months? Share a meal with somebody that you haven't shared a meal with before. You can't just invite your kids over, okay? All right, that's charge number one. We need to be a people that are hospitable. Invite people into your homes. It's not really optional. We need to pray. We need to spend a lot of time in prayer. And we've talked a lot about prayer over the last few years. and What that looks like as a body and as a family. And it still stretches our comfort level. It it stretches what we're comfortable with. But I don't see in Scripture, I don't see in the early church, this idea that prayer is limited to the inside of my head. There's actual voices. Like out loud voices. And so we open up a time of prayer every Sunday And it's an opportunity that is free for you to move around. And it's an opportunity for you to request prayer and give prayer. Prayer is an incredible gift. We come into this place to give, not just to receive. And so somebody needs a prayer from you. And it doesn't have to be difficult. And it doesn't have to be glamorous. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this well-worded thing. It can be simple. It's as simple as saying, hey, Riley, how can I pray for you right now? 
and just a simple response back and a simple sentence back. It doesn't have to be complicated. And we also have to be willing and vulnerable to ask for prayer. To say, this is going on in my life. I, re I really need somebody to pray for this. Have the courage to do that, even if it's a little thing. It doesn't have to be huge. So I'd like for, if you're a small group leader, if you're an elder, if you're a class teacher, if you could just raise your hand. Just raise your hands. Carlene and Bill and Donna, if you would just raise your hands. David and Peggy Lee, if you would raise your hands. These are people that you can go to right now. And they'll pray with you about anything. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you will help us be a people who love one another. And as we express that love, I pray that you will show us how to be a people of prayer, how to be a people of hospitality, a people of service. God, God challenge us, encourage us, help us to, to, to be the church that you want us to be, that you long for us to be. To God be the glory. Amen.